Um, if we have not met yet, if this is your first time or you didn't watch the announcements, I am uh, Matt Bruner. I have the privilege of being the youth pastor here. Um, and I just want to say it's so cool to be able to open up God's Word and be able to share it with you guys on mornings like this and two weeks in a row. Like, thank you guys for coming back, right? Uh, Pastor Steve and Michelle are on vacation, and we are praying that they are going to come back refreshed and ready to go. Um, but, um, yeah, let's dive right in this morning. I want to do some recap. Pastor Steve, um, we've been doing this uh, series, or going talking about freedom for the month of July. He started out the first couple weeks of going through the, the Gospel of John and going to First John. I'm talking about our freedom. Um, and last week, we opened up a discussion about the three enemies of the soul and killing the spider. And I'm just kidding, that was... That was a different reference for a different sermon. Uh, last week we opened up, yes, if you see any kind of spiders, always kill them. Uh, last week we opened up a discussion on the three enemies of the soul that work together to sabotage our spiritual freedom. And so just a little recap, we talked about how the devil, he uses deceitful ideas, which are better known as lies, to play to our disordered desires, which we are going to refer to as our flesh, and that are then normalized in a sinful society, which is the world. That's the definition that we've been working on, and a definition I stole shamelessly from um, John Mark Comer. And so last week, we dove into that first thing, like the devil's primary way to attack us is through lies. Um, so we dove into that. Don't worry about what's going on behind me. Um, right here, right here. Last week, we dove into the devil's primary ways, which are lies, and he lies about who God is, about who we are, and what the good life is. And he, he tries to get us to answer that in all the wrong ways. And so everything is, starts with a deceptive idea or a temptation um, or a lie that we believe and then live by. But we talked about how we overcome that by believing the truth and knowing the truth and, and standing in that in replace of the lie. But we have a problem with that. And that problem is that the reason why his lies and deceptions and temptations are so effective are because there's a part of us that wants to believe them. There's a part of us that wants to go off and do the wrong thing. They are effective because of our disordered desires or the way that the New Testament puts it, because of our flesh. Our flesh is the reason why. And uh, well, I thought I went out for a second. Paul and the writers in the New Testament, they, uh, they use the word flesh to talk about that desire, but the word flesh also has two other meanings. So whenever you see that word in the New Testament, you need to understand the context. Uh, the one way the, that word means is talking about like a physical body. Like in John chapter 1, in verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh. That's referring to Jesus putting on a human form and becoming a human being. Another way that Paul uses it is for to talk about a people or a cultural group, um, talking about how they are now one flesh, they're now one people. But the primary way, whenever Paul refers to it, the, the main thing that he means um, is our animalistic drive bent towards evil. It's what our body craves apart from God. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians 2, verse 3. I don't know if these will be on the screen anytime soon. Um, Ephesians 2, verse 3, it says, what Paul is referring to in the flesh, he says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, 
carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Notice how Paul puts those two things together. Remember, the devil, he attacks with lies and deception with, with our thoughts. Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. And so what Paul is meaning there, he's talking about our animalistic cravings, or our evil cravings that we want to do apart from God. Um, and so basically, he's referring to those self, that, the animalistic drive for self-gratification. So whenever he's referring to flesh, we all know exactly what it means. And most of the time, it's for sensuality, which as in like food or, or sex, but also just for pleasure. Like our flesh wants to feel good, as well as our instincts for survival and domination and for control. All of those come from what Paul is referring to as the flesh. And the world helps push our flesh further away from what God wants us because the world is always about instant gratification. Whenever you turn on the TV, whenever you open up your phone, you're going to be bombarded with sayings like, the heart wants what the heart wants, or follow your heart, or you do you, or just just do it. Speak your truth. That's one of my favorites. Speak your truth. And of course, be true to yourself. In our world, happiness has become about feeling good and not about being good. Like if you ask any person on the street, like, what does it mean to be happy? And this is obvious because of what's going on the TV and movies and stuff like, but like, what does it mean to be happy? It's about feeling good. It's about being happy. It's about enjoying, finding pleasure, about being true to yourself. And it's about feeling good, not being good. And remember, we all ask the questions like, who is God? Who are we? And then what is the good life? The good life, according to the world and according because of our flesh, has become about getting what we want instead of becoming the kind of people who truly want good things. It's about getting what we want when we want it so we can feel good at the moment instead of becoming a person that truly wants something that is good. The self, our self, our flesh, not God or Scripture, is the new God in our country today. And that's true in in liberal cultures. That's true in conservative cultures. That's true in big urban towns. That's true in small towns. The self is king in our world. And what do I mean by self? I'm talking about that part of us that we think it's all about us and our comfort and what we need, what we want. It has become our God, and that is not a good thing. Here's what David Wells, um, he's a theologian. Here's what he says, what happens to a society that is ruled by flesh or the self. In a society where that happens, he says, theology becomes therapy. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness. Holiness by wholeness. Truth by feeling. Ethics by feeling good about oneself. The world shrinks to a range of personal circumstances. The community of faith shrinks to a circle of personal friends. The past recedes, the church recedes, the world recedes, and all that remains is self. And yourself is not a good thing to follow. There's a lot of reasons for that, but the self is not a good thing to follow. Whenever yourself becomes the God that you serve, it creates a crushing weight that you were never meant to bear. Whenever yourself is God, that means you must now discover yourself Become yourself, stay true to yourself, 
justify yourself, make yourself happy, perform and defend your own identity, the pressure is exhausting. Trying to keep up with all of those, especially for teenagers, it is exhausting. And there's no wonder why we see all the stats for burnout and anxiety and depression on the rise because we were never meant to create and become ourself, whatever that even means. And the world will also tell you that your strongest desire is your deepest desire. Like whatever you feel like you want to say, that's your deepest desire. So go ahead and say it. Whatever you feel like you want to do, do it. Whatever you want to think, think it. Your strongest desire is your deepest desire. So that's why you become yourself. Stay true to yourself. What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to be? Whatever your strongest desire is, that must be your deepest desire. So discover that. Live that out. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I'm here to tell you that's not true. Your strongest desire, the thing you feel the most, is not your deepest desire. That's not coming from the deepest part of you. What I mean, in that moment of temptation, whenever you feel that raging fire of desire that is your flesh, that desire, whether it's to talk bad about a coworker, to buy another pair of shoes that you know you don't need, to overeat, to overdrink, to lust, to ignore God, to, to scroll Facebook instead of you read your Bible, Whenever we feel that raging temptation, it feels like it is irresistible, right? It feels like, like, I have to do this. I want to do this. I need to do this. But we all know that that is not our deepest desire. Those desires are not coming from the deepest, truest parts of your heart, the deepest parts of your soul. Because have you ever noticed that as soon as you give in to whatever that temptation is, to whether it's to go back for that, for, to overeat or to overdrink or to look at that thing on the internet or to talk bad about that person. Have you ever noticed as soon as you give in, you feel worse off than you did before? It never truly satisfies. It never feels good. It feels good in the moment. It, it feels good in, um, whenever you're doing it. And that's, that's a lie that we don't believe a lot or not a lie, that's a truth we don't say a lot is that sometimes sinning feels good. Sometimes it, it does feel good in the moment, but it never lasts. It doesn't satisfy. And then the way I frame it with our students is that we all have a, a God-sized hole in our heart. We have a, a hole in our heart that we try to fill with everything else, whether that's um, popularity or identity or pleasure, whatever it is, we try to fill it and nothing fills it, but only God himself can satisfy. So then we ask ourselves, like, what is our deepest desire? Not our strongest, because we have different strong desires depending on what time of day it is or what time of the year it is. But what is our deepest desire? Here's how to find out. Whenever you're home and you're trying to figure this out, come quiet before God. Close all your distractions. Get rid, turn off your phone. Turn it on, on its side. Close your door. Take a few deep breaths. And let the deepest desires of your heart come to surface. Ask yourself, like, what do you want? What is it that you truly want or need? And what you'll discover after a couple minutes is that what you truly desire is an ache for God himself. It's to live in his love. It's to yield to his gentle peace. What you really want, you want rest. You want peace. You want joy. You want to, to let your body become a place where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And whenever you notice that, that's a desire from the, from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is giving you that as a gift. 
I love the way what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, but I also love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message paraphrase. Jesus said, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And if we're honest with ourselves, deep down there is a desire for that kind of life and peace. The life And that life is only found in following Jesus and surrendering yourself to Jesus, apprenticing and becoming a disciple of Jesus, where we follow Jesus every step on the way to the cross. So how do we find that life? It's not by following every desire that we feel in the moment, but it's by following Jesus step by step. So Jesus, he said that in Matthew chapter 11. But before you get there, you're asking, like Jesus says, come to me. Anyone who wants to find me, you'll find peace and rest. But before Jesus says that, he says in Luke chapter 9, he says something that sounds counterintuitive. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he said to them all, he says, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Freedom is found in submission to Jesus. It's found in denying yourself. It's found in taking up your cross. It's found in following Jesus and doing what Jesus did. He says, if you want real peace, if you want real rest, if you want your deepest desires satisfied in me, deny yourself daily. Take up your cross and follow me. Let's look at our first case study that we were looking at last week. Last week, we dove into Genesis chapter 3. We just went to the first five verses, and we saw how the devil uses his tactics of lies and deceit to twist and turn what Eve did. So we're going to dive into that, and we're going to see how um, the flesh played a part in that as well. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But about the fruit in the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat or touch it or you will die. No, you'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she she took it of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. So right off the bat, Satan comes to Eve and uses lies and deceit and temptation to trick her into eating the fruit. But what we see here is that the woman already had a desire for the fruit. Maybe not that particular fruit, but she already had a desire inside of her. She saw that the tree was good for food and that the tree was delightful to look at and that the tree was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Those three things are important. Those are important details to to keep in mind. So Eve had given 
where Eve had God-given desires inside of her, but she allowed them to be satisfied in the wrong place. She has those desires before sin ever entered the world because sin didn't technically enter the world until they actually did the, that act of disobedience. But she already had the desires for those things. But she allowed them to be fulfilled in the wrong place. The temptation that you face is similar to what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 2. It says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, The lust of the eyes and the pride of one's possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And we see that play out um, in in Eve. She saw that the tree was good for food. That's like the lust of the flesh. She saw the tree was delightful to look at. That's the lust of the eyes. And the tree was desirable for obtaining wisdom. That's the pride of life. All temptation falls into those three things. But let's notice again. Eve had a desire before sin entered the world, which meant God gave her the desire to eat good food. Come on, say amen to that. Like God's given us a desire to eat good food, to look at beautiful things, and to obtain wisdom. But she allowed the devil to satisfy those God-given desires in all the wrong places, resulting in the opposite of what Eve wanted in the first place, which is the absence of God. And the absence of God is the definition of death. And so Eve had these desires for something good. God given her these desires to be satisfied in him alone, but she allowed them to be satisfied in the wrong thing, and the result was death. But we know we weren't made for death, but we were made for freedom and for life. So how do we find that? How do we walk away from this path that leads towards death and find true freedom and true life? Galatians chapter 5, you can turn with me. We'll be there for the rest of this morning. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, you guys know very well. It says, for freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm and then don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. And so this verse, it's often quoted around the 4th of July over presidential campaigns. We hear it a lot. Uh, But we know that freedom in the Bible, it's not necessarily a social freedom or political freedom. Uh, So then what kind of freedom is it for? What, what freedom did Christ set us free for? If we skip down to verse 13, Paul tells us, he says, For freedom you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will can be consumed by one another. So the translation that um, is happening here is like, just because you're no longer under the Mosaic covenant, because Paul's talking to former Jews, don't abuse your newfound freedom in Jesus. Don't give in to your flesh. Instead, give yourself over to the relational constraints of love. In Christ, we are free. In Christ, we have freedom But freedom is easy to abuse and misuse. And whenever we abuse or misuse freedom, we're negating love. We're saying no to love because those two are opposed. It's interesting for Paul Paul, that the opposite of indulging the flesh was to love your neighbor. And so when I see that, I'm like, how is that an opposite? Like, why, why are those two things together? Like, how do you not feed your flesh by loving your neighbor? And how do you not love your neighbor by feeding your flesh? And then, it, like, I read a little bit more, some, some commentaries, some smarter people, and it came to me that they are opposite. 
Love is outward. The agape love they're talking about, it's a self-sacrificing, serving love. Love is outward while sin is focusing on the internal. Sin is always selfish while love is selfless, doing things for others. Love for your neighbor is it's hard work and it's full of pain as well of joy while the flesh is lazy and it's self-indulgent. It wants what just feels good in the moment. My favorite quote when doing this research is, I found St. Augustine, he had the definition of sin and it's love turned in on itself. Like if you just boil down sin, what's the definition of sin? It's love, which God gave us, turned in on itself instead of turned outward for love for God and love for neighbor. Paul continues in verse 16. He says, I say then walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. That seems backwards. Like the culture will tell you, do what you want. Do what you want when you want to do it. Remember, like, be true to yourself. Discover yourself. Do what you want when you want. That's freedom. This, that's the American way. That's the American dream. Do what you want. But the Bible says that we shouldn't do what we want. Doing what you want is not freedom. Instead, it is a new suffocating kind of slavery. Because whatever you do, you want, you're giving yourself over to, to sin, and it traps you into doing that even more. Just because something looks good or, or feels good doesn't mean that it is good. Remember, your strongest desire is not your deepest desire. Look at the example of Adam and Eve in the garden. Their strongest desire wasn't their deepest desire. They, they satisfied their strong desire in the wrong place. So our flesh is our shallow, animalistic drive for self-pleasure that means our flesh or our spirit is our higher and even deeper desire for God and his love and goodness. And the spirit is the empowering presence of God deep in our bones. And he is the one that is gently leading us into greater levels of self-sacrificing love. And so whenever we walk with Jesus or whenever we live by the spirit, or as we talked about last week, whenever we abide in Jesus and his word, we will not carry out the desires of your flesh. That's what Paul is saying here. Like, if you walk with the Spirit, you'll live in the Spirit. If you walk in the flesh, you'll live in the flesh. Romans 8, yeah, Romans chapter 8 dives into that even more of the, the opposing between the flesh and the Spirit. But then we ask the question, okay, we shouldn't live by the flesh. We should live by the Spirit. But one question that comes to mind, like, what does it actually mean to live by the flesh? Like, that's a weird word. Like, what does it mean? Um, Paul, don't worry. Paul dives in. He gives us some practical examples so Paul lists them out so that we're all on the same page of what the flesh is. So verse 19 through 21, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, sorry, immortality, not, you're not sexually immoral. Or, but hold on, I said that wrong that way. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. So that's a pretty wide brush of, of sins he's covering there. But he says, I'm warning you about these things. 
as I've warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That lands heavy. But does, that, does any of that sound familiar? Like, that's a pretty broad stroke, but does any of that sound familiar? These are kind of like old, archaic terms, but let's put them in um, more modern terms. So whenever it says sexual immorality, uh, moral impurity, promiscuity, what Paul is talking about there in our own, that we can see in our own culture, like it's like the club, the bar, that's hookup culture, like you just sleep wherever you want to. Um, all the, that's what that's talking about. Hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger. Anybody? Don't raise your hand. Uh, but what we see there, that's like Twitter, that's Facebook. Like if you get deep into the comment section on Facebook, you're like, oh man, I feel like I need to repent. I didn't even write these things. Uh, cancel culture, and most of our cable news, including both CNN and Fox News, both are, um, are part of this, of pointing us towards hatred for the other, outbursts of anger, hatred, strife. Next, Paul, he lists out selfish ambition, dissension, factions. That's most of us, selfish ambition, right? Um, what we see there, that's politics, all the way from personal politics of gossip about your friends and trying to get yourself up in the, in the ladder at work all the way to politics in Washington, D.C. Selfish ambition is a big drive in that. Envy, that's a big one. Literally anything on the internet, anything going to the mall, all the billboards, every ad you see scrolling on Facebook or Instagram. Um, and then, of course, just Instagram in general. Like, don't get me started on how comparison is the thief of all joy, of envy. Like, I want what they want. I want what they have. I want their boat. I want their house. I want their car. And then he ends with drunkenness, carousing. Um, and just in case you forgot anything, he says anything similar, right? So Netflix, HBO, movies, TV shows, rated R things. What is scary is how common this list is. Like, that's the scary part. What's even scarier than that is how common this list is in our Christian lives, of how we let that, we get swept up in that, of sexual immorality, of we get hooked on porn or hatred and strife. We watch news and we let the news dictate how we feel about our neighbor. What's scary is how common this is and how scary it is in our Christian lives. But what is more scary is how steep the consequences are of living this life. Paul, he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, those who practice these things, those who make a habit consisting in these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And for example, he's saying, you are not a Christian if this is a part of your daily life. That's scary. The war that we face on the flesh is serious because it's more than just talking about a pleasure and shame of, of you did bad in that moment, now you need to feel bad and repent. It's more than just a moment of pleasure and shame. It's of eternal consequences. It's more than just feeling good in the moment or, or denying yourself in the moment. It's of eternal consequences. And so to be an apprentice of Jesus then is to live a life that is not characterized by the things of this world, but a life that is characterized by the things of the Spirit. Paul contrasts the way of the flesh versus the way of the Spirit so that it is crystal clear what is expected of us. And so we know this next list very well. Romans chapter 5, verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there's no law against these things. 
This is a great list. But if it's just that, it has no power in us. This is a great list, but I feel like often enough, we don't let the gravity and the beauty of the way of the Spirit to truly affect us. That's because mainly because we've heard this list so often that we can quote it without thinking. For some of our students, we can do the dance and memorize all the words and stuff without even thinking about what we're doing. But also because a life characterized like this, it seems like a pipe dream. It seems like it's far off. Like no one really lives that way, right? Like if you're not getting mad, if you're, if you're not defending yourself, if you're not doing this and, and enjoying your life, you're not doing it right. Like a life like this, it seems like a pipe dream, but also seems unrealistic. And we also don't have a lot of examples of a life like this in, in our public world. But Paul is saying a life that is marked by a life that's been truly free, found in Jesus, should look like this. Like, this is what your life should look like. Your life should be characterized by love. It should be characterized by joy. It should be characterized by, by peace. And Paul is saying that when you walk in the Spirit, this is the kind of person that you will become. You'll become loving and joyful. You'll become unanxious. You'll become unhurried. You'll become helpful. You'll become a deeply good person. Paul, he's contrasting the way of the flesh versus the way of the world. And what's scary is how, how often we see the things of the world in our lives and how little we see the things of the Spirit. So the question that we should be asking then is, how do we walk in the Spirit? Like, how can we live this kind of life? What do we need to do? A lot of us were like, check it off the list kind of people. Let's write it down. Let's check it off. Let's move on. So what do we need to do so we can move on? Verse 24. He says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. Slavery to our flesh is our most dangerous enemy. Sinful passions, the flesh that we have is our most dangerous enemy. It's not China or Russia. It's not the opposing political party that's in power. It's not even losing the, or the thought or the, the threat of losing our political freedoms or um, anything like that. Because Christians through centuries, they've lost those things and still serve God faithfully. And our greatest enemy is not even the devil. Like, we, that's a big topic. That's a big thing. We just spent a whole week on that last Sunday. Our greatest enemy in spiritual life, it's not even the devil. I heard a quote that said, if the devil died today, you would still sin tomorrow. That's because the devil can't control us or, or um, he can only tempt us or trick us. He can't control us. But instead, our flesh, our sinful passions that we have is our greatest enemy because that's already inside of us. And because when we practice the flesh, the consequences are eternal. And the message of the Bible, it's hard. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's very clear. Spirit-filled believers, those who have given their, their lives over to Christ, they have made a clean break with sin, the world, and the flesh. Paul, he says, now those who belong to Christ, you have crucified your flesh. So we can reverse that and like, you have, when you have crucified your flesh, now you belong to Christ. But Paul, he's saying in a passive sense, like now that like those who have belonged to Christ, you have crucified your flesh. So then we need to ask the question, like what does it mean to live in that cruciform kind of life? What does it mean to have crucified, to be crucified of Christ? 
There's two ways to look at it, and both are equally true. The first is that in Christ, we have been crucified with him. That what has happened to Christ has now happened to us. We call this imputed righteousness, where Jesus' righteousness becomes ours. He died in our place, carrying our sins. He died for us as a substitutionary atonement so that we can now become alive in him. His death becomes our death. His, His sinless life becomes our sinless life. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. The way that God sees us now, he sees us as Jesus when we are in Christ because of what Jesus did for us. That is true. And that is what Paul is talking about here. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, but it's twofold. We also have an active role in crucifying our flesh. That's obvious because of what Paul writes to all the other churches. In Ephesians, he commands them. He says, take off your old life and put on your new life. That's an active thing. He says, get rid of your old self, put on the new self. In Romans chapter six, Paul, he he is telling them, to stop offering your bodies, your members as instruments of unrighteousness. He says, you have a part to play in to Stop giving your body over to sin. And then to the Corinthians, he challenged them to cleanse themselves of all contamination of body and spirit. He's saying that we have an active role in participating in our holiness. So even though Christ is our holiness, and even though we are in, whenever we are in Christ, God sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, we are still realized to, or still commanded to live a holy life, an everyday living. That's what Romans 12 is all about, First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is saying, those who have been in Christ, you have crucified the flesh, now live as someone who's crucified the flesh. And Paul's call to holiness, it's not a new kind of legalism. It's not saying like, oh, now you have to be perfect and then God will accept you. We have to do this, that, and that. And now we can become a good Christian. It's the exact opposite. Those who are in Christ are slowly dying to their old self and coming alive to their new self. That is what it's all about. Holiness is commanded, but there's good news in that it is only brought by the spirit of holiness. It's not a new kind of legalism because there's nothing that we could actually do ourselves to become a holy person deserving of God's grace. Like that part is true. It's because the Holy Spirit comes in us and is creating in us a a desire for a holy life. That's what he says in verse 25. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I found a Scott McKnight, he has a, a different translation called the second translation. He translated that if we live by the Spirit, let us walk the line in the Spirit. Step in step, walk the line. The Holy Spirit is showing us the way to holy living, to live in the Spirit. But he's also the empowering presence that gives us the ability to walk the line with him. So how do we do this? How do we put this into practice? What is something that we can do Today, what is something that we can do in our life to live this life, to say no to our flesh and say yes to God's spirit? Um, We're going to skip down to chapter six. We're going to read verses seven through nine. Paul, he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. We know that verse well again. 
There's a lot of these verses we know well. This is especially that last verse. We become weary if, or don't become weary and give up. Let us not get tired of doing good. Like we'll see that a a lot on get well student cards or encouragement cards. Like, hey, I, I know you're going through a hard time. I hope you recover well. Don't get tired of doing good. Or maybe for tired pastors on Passion Appreciation Month, like don't like don't give up. Don't stop doing good things. You find that a lot, but that is not what Paul is talking about there in the context. In the context, he's not talking about getting better in a rough season. He's talking about fighting the flesh. Oh, I guess that's a dead spot right there. He's talking about fighting the flesh. Paul says that what you sow, you will reap. In a way, he's like what you plant is what's going to grow, and it's what you're going to harvest. Paul is using agriculture terms to an agricultural culture, but basically Paul is saying that what you feed grows. What kind of seed you plant, what you feed, that's what's going to grow in your life. And if you feed your flesh, your flesh will grow and it's going to lead to destruction. If you feed your spirit, your spirit will grow and it's going to lead to eternal life. What you feed grows, but also the opposite is true, that is the what you starve dies. If you feed your flesh, the flesh is going to grow, but if you starve your flesh, your flesh will die. And the same is true for your spirit. If you feed your spirit, your spirit grows. But if you starve your spirit with the things it wants and needs, your spirit will die. It won't grow. The more you feed your flesh, the more it goes and the harder it is to get rid of. And the only way to defeat your flesh is to starve it. It's by saying no. Jesus, he said, deny yourself daily. Take up your cross and follow me. That's talking about starving your flesh. And one of the most practical things that we can do in our daily life and actually put into practice to starve our flesh is to literally starve our flesh. And a spiritual discipline term for that is fasting. Fasting is one of the best practices to starve your flesh. Fasting trains our bodies to not get what it wants when it wants it, at least not all the time. And fasting is something we don't talk about or do a lot as as Christians, but for Jesus, it, it wasn't even a question. He didn't say, like, if you fast, do this. But in Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you fast, when you do this, when this is a part of your daily life, this is how it's going to be done. And Christians throughout centuries, ever since Jesus and the disciples, ever since that happened, for all the way up until the Reformation age, they fasted twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays, all the way from sun up to sun, or yeah, sun up to sundown. It was a daily part of the life. Fasting trains our bodies to not get what it wants so that we can more easily say no to the inside flesh. The more you practice saying no to a very real need and desire that you have, which is food, we really, really need food for our life. The more that we can say no to that very real thing, the easier it is to say no to other desires of the flesh, such as lust or gossip. Another thing I didn't mention in first service, but another practice for Saying no to the flesh is confession. Confessing your sins, getting what was in the dark out to light will kill it, to get it out. And God, he says in in 1 John, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. God will forgive you if we confess. But if we confess to each other, there's healing in that. That's what James says. If we confess one another, and it's not like in a a Catholic priest confessional type, type of way, 
but finding somebody, a friend or a trusted person that you know that loves you and loves Jesus that you can be honest with, like, hey, this is an area that I'm feeding my flesh and struggling with. The more that we can get used to doing that, the more we'll say no to our flesh, the more that flesh will die. And the good thing is, is that the opposite is also true, is that the more you feed your spirit, the more it grows and the stronger your spirit comes alive inside of you. Every time you practice a habit of Jesus, such as prayer or getting away and doing silence and solitude or or reading scripture or fasting or, or meditating, your spirit gets a little stronger while simultaneously your flesh is getting a little weaker. That's how this works. The more you feed your spirit and starve your flesh, the better it is. And these aren't just these practices of, of reading and fasting and meditating and praying. That's, these aren't just counter habits. They're not just like, I need to form better habits in my life and get rid of the toxic habits. Like that's a part of it. Like we need to replace the bad habits with the good habits. But that only gets us so far. Like willpower alone won't get us there. But the cool thing about the practices of Jesus and, and spiritual disciplines is that it is opening up our life. We're opening ourselves to the Spirit to empower us more. The practices of Jesus, they're not just habits. They are the means by which we access power that is above us. Because our willpower alone is weak, and we can't get along with willpower. Like, I can say I have as much willpower as any one of you, but you place a plate of chocolate cookies in front of me. My wife can attest, like, when no one's looking, one of those cookies is going to be gone, right? Our willpower can only take us so far. The practices of Jesus are the means by which we get the spirit inside of us, which is a power that is stronger than us, and it enables us to live a far more powerful life. It's not about trying hard, but it's about dying to ourselves and allowing the spirit to work through us. And that's why they, we call them spiritual disciplines. The Holy Spirit is there to help you in your spiritual disciplines. As the Pentecostal scholar Gordon Fee, he said, first to the Spirit as God's empowering your presence or God's empowering presence. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, killing your flesh, and then doing the things that Jesus did in replace of that, reading scripture, meditating in his presence, praying, fasting, these are all ways to walk in the Spirit, but spiritually they open you up to receive more Spirit in your life, which then gives you more desire and more power to keep doing the things that Jesus did. It's not about trying. It's not about willpower. It's not about just hungering down and gritting your teeth and I'm going to do this. But it's about dying to yourself. It's more passive. It's saying, God, I'm letting you take control I'm going to set aside this time to fast. I'm going to set, a time this, set aside this time to pray. And I'm going to let you do the rest. And the Spirit's going to give you more desire and more power to keep walking the way he wants you to walk. And the life and the result of the life characterized by this is the fruit of the Spirit. It's that love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's why Paul said, Let us not get tired of doing good. The good that he's talking about there is the spiritual disciplines. Let us not get tired of feeding the spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. We will reap the benefits of the fruit of the spirit if we don't get tired of practicing the way of Jesus. 
So a practice I want you guys to think about, to consider for this week or this month, is to consider a time or a meal to fast, whether it's one meal a week or one day of the week or whatever that is, consider spending time to fast and spend that time with God. But this morning, I want you to accept Jesus' invitation to abide in God's presence. I'm going to read that verse over you guys one more time of, of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, are you tired? You're worn out, burned out on religion. Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Following Jesus is not about trying, but it's about dying to ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. And Jesus says the, that life, the life in the spirit, is going to be better than anything you could do on your own. The worship team, they're going to lead us in another song. And during this altar time, the prayer team is going to be available if you have any need to come up and pray. But use this time to get alone in God's presence and come to him and find rest. As I pray to close this, I'm going to ask you guys to go ahead and stand. And then when I say amen, we're going to get back into worship.